Mother Earth is psychedelic. Her body is covered with psychoactive, sacred medicine. Can psychedelics help us become more conscious and loving parents, partners, lovers, and leaders? Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Carlin, the Psychedelic Mom, a mother and entrepreneur partnering with Mother Earth's sacred plant medicines to heal, awaken, and learn to live in alignment to my truth. Psychedelic literally means soul revealing. What reveals the soul to oneself is psychedelic. I invite you to join me in deep conversations with leaders, healers, seekers, and other parents. I will share my journey, the wisdom, practices, medicines, and mistakes that have changed my life, and personal stories of others on this wild path. We are the medicine needed to birth the more beautiful world we know is possible. Welcome to this episode of The Psychedelic Mom. It's always a pleasure to bring somebody to you that had an influence on my life, and today I get to do that. I sat down with Dr. Dan Engel, a teacher of mine that I met when I was doing my certification program for psychedelic integration coaching. And I knew right off the bat that Dr. Dan had not only incredible amounts of knowledge about psychedelics, but incredible wisdom about the arc of transformation and spirituality and the human journey. So I got to meet Dr. Dan at his new healing center, Kuya Institute for Transformational Medicine in Austin, Texas. Dr. Dan is a psychiatrist that integrates aspects of regenerative medicine, peak performance, psychedelic research, and integrative spirituality. All these things come together at Kuya. From the moment you walk into Kuya, you realize that you're stepping into a paradigm shift in the way we treat mental health, depression, anxiety, and transformation. So what happens at Kuya? Well, upstairs at Kuya are these four beautiful treatment rooms for the use of ketamine, a legal psychedelic. And each room is set up to look like one of the elements, fire, water, air, and earth. And they're so beautiful. So we talked to Dr. Dan about what is the future of psychedelics and the psychedelic renaissance in the space of healing and recovery and treating trauma and PTSD and anxiety. Dr. Dan tells us about his own personal story of what got him here, why he closed down his child psychiatry practice years ago and headed to the jungle to work with the sacred plant medicine, ayahuasca. He speaks of his reverence for this plant and all that she taught him, the journals and journals of information and downloads and wisdom that he gleaned from her. He also speaks about his journey home from the jungle and how hard it was to come back to Western society and his dark night of the soul that he experienced in that integration process. We also learn that Dr. Dan had a personal tragedy in his life, and that tragedy was really his call to action to take everything that he had learned from his medical practice to his peak performance modalities, his integrative spirituality, and put it into a place that could heal people. And before we begin, I do have to read a disclaimer because there is sensitive information in this podcast. The information provided in this podcast is for general 
informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical recommendations, diagnoses, or treatment. And the use of the information in this podcast is to be used at your own discretion. This is not an endorsement of use of these medicines given their inherent complexity and also their current variable widespread illegality of use. So again, enjoy this episode. Enjoy Dr. Dan's wisdom. I would love to hear from you any feedback that you have on this episode. And for those of you interested in finding out more about ketamine and kuya, I will put all of Dr. Dan's information in the show notes. Welcome, Dr. Dan, to the Psychedelic Mom podcast. Good to be with you, Michaela. I'm so excited to be here in Austin with you and see this beautiful project that I had heard about when we talked before this bloomed into this space. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you for coming. Yeah. And one of the things that we're kind of exploring is having the privilege at this time in history to have these medicines, mm -hmm. to not, not just have these medicines, but also the wisdom and someone like you who's bringing science and soul work together. Mm. And um, I'd love to know what you think about this, this time in history and where psychedelics are and how this came into being with that mission in mind of mm. helping us all heal. Mm -hmm. Well, I've only been on the planet for you know close to 50 years, so I don't know experientially what happened prior to me coming right. in. So if I say that this is the most dynamic time in human history, that's within a context and right. only from my own personal perspective. But it certainly seems like that's the case. This is that part in the story where you're not sure if the heroine or the hero is gonna make it through. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know the future of humanity. We have the opportunity to, to heal and we also have the opportunity to destroy. And never have we had the opportunity to do that, both on a global level, at scale, almost immediately. And so it's this really beautiful dynamic tension. And I believe that part of the experience that we have in the privilege to heal, we were just talking about a little bit about that mm -hmm. a moment ago. And essentially what we mean by that is this opportunity that we have to come in and and do the good work not only on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of the collective, but also on behalf of our ancestors. Like we are coming in to clean up a lot of transgenerational trauma because our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents typically didn't have access to these kind of tools. And so there is a part of our duty. It's our duty to do our own work. We have the privilege to do that work it's our duty to be mindful and in service to the generations to come. And so as parents, mindful of those generations to come, can we willingly go into the shadow of ourselves and our ancestral line, clean up the deep trauma, and unburden the future generations from carrying on that same transgenerational pattern? So that if we can unburden the generations to come from carrying our weighted unmet needs and experiences of loss and failure and wounding and 
you know, fill in the blank, then they can just be whoever they need to be. Right. To do the work that they're going to be needed to do to, and, you know, help us get this whole like collective water rock that we call Earth on a more stable trajectory, or at least the humanity part of Earth on a more stable trajectory. And so we have this privilege to heal. And, and how amazing is that, that mm-hmm. we're having this conversation now on the Psychedelic Moms podcast when not only half a dozen years ago, this wouldn't have been as cool, as ready, as available to talk about. It's happening that fast. Right, and like you, I haven't been on this path for too long and I couldn't talk about it. You know, it it wasn't really okay to talk about it. And now there is even the privilege to have the conversations and have them openly Mm -hmm. and to share them and hopefully talk about how these medicines are tools for this kind of work. So I'd love to hear um, from you, like in your own personal journey, how have these medicines helped you heal some of Mm. your lineage Mm -hmm. and how you help others do the same? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a good question. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to to share the story. I don't share it too much, but when I do, it always brings me a greater degree of gratitude and humility and appreciation uh, for the process. And I didn't go into medicine thinking about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. I kind of just found my way into medicine after uh, going to college to play soccer. And I was just going to see what was going to happen after that. And it was recommended to me by my advisor to check out medicine and then I got into ER medicine and surgical care, and I was going to go straight down that road. Then two weeks before medical school, I broke my neck, and that, and I wore a halo for three months, just screwed into my skull. Oh my and it was gosh. the first thing that kind of slowed me down long enough to just reflect, like, wow, okay, who's, whose life have I been living? Whose expectations have I been serving? And is this really what I want? And when I slow down enough to recognize like, okay, yeah, I can throttle down. I can stand on the accelerator, move everybody out of my way, which was kind of my (laughs) MO up to that point. I can have a 4.0 and be captain of the team and fill in all of the accolades. Um, You know, at one point in in my college career, I had more rewards and awards and uh, accolades than any other scholar athlete ever had. And, and, it was just that degree of intensity and that degree of like type A aggression and 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 that's rewarded. And I was certainly rewarded. I got validation for that. Mm-hmm. It was certainly my identity. And then when I realized like, oh, I don't that actually doesn't feel authentic, like deeper down, but mm-hmm. it took me the while to slow down. And thankfully, a broken neck didn't mean paraquadriplegia. It just meant that I'm going to have a halo in and some rehab and, and, the, and the privilege to slow down mm-hmm. and to reflect. It's kind of, COVID's kind of been like that privilege yeah. to slow down and reflect. Mm-hmm. Are we going to do this different? Mm-hmm. Are we going to go back to pre-COVID like life as was? Well, I hope not because it's not a sustainable trajectory. I wasn't on a sustainable trajectory and I also wasn't in, in line with my dharma. Right. And I wasn't in line with like a deeper soul. So when I slowed down, I realized like, oh, I don't have to stand on the accelerator and live somebody else's life. I can actually like peel it back a bit, be fine with bees. <laughs> and then I started having more fun. I had more fun in med school and residency than I ever had in high school and college. 
And most of the time it's the other way around because med school and residency are usually pretty stressful. But I started having much more fun because I was just living a more authentic, well-paced life. And then I got into psychiatry and neurology because I want to understand like, oh, wow, I've had a number of brain injuries because of a bunch of combat sports and I just broke my neck, but I didn't get paralyzed. So what's all this about psychoneuro? So I got into psychoneuro and then it just went from there. And then I eventually, after my last fellowship, I had my clinic for a number of years. And, and there was something in the, in, in the relationship I was in at the time when we came to the natural conclusion, I couldn't feel the grief. I didn't have access to it. And I was really cold in the midst of our separation. And I could feel how much my coldness hurt my previous partner. And it was hard for me to see her go through that. And it was a first little window into like, well, there's a lot in here mm. that I'm not in touch with. And I didn't want to live the rest of my life like that. So I made a big prayer to help open up my heart. And I didn't know how that was going to happen. And then as grace will avail us with the opportunities, a few weeks after I made that prayer in a sweat lodge, I was introduced to Ayahuasca Circle. And this is about 15 years ago. Okay. I didn't know anything about Ayahuasca. I didn't know anything about psychedelic therapy. Uh, and in that one weekend with Aya, I, in that first weekend, I learned more about myself than I had in one decade of psychotherapy and one decade of psychiatry training. And so I was sold mm -hmm. and I closed my clinic and moved down to the jungle and I lived there for a year. Amazing. Well, when you talk about, I'm curious, when you talk about this, um, way of being kind of, you were compartmentalized, you weren't feeling, you weren't even feeling the loss of this grieving this relationship you were running hard running fast accomplishing was that a family pattern yes and no mm -hmm. uh, I was the first one in my family to go to college mm -hmm. so it was it was beautiful that my family didn't have expectations they were like wow you're going to college great whatever you want to do after that mm -hmm. great I had a lot of love mm -hmm. growing up mm -hmm. but I had a ton of tension between my mom and dad mm -hmm. they separated when I was one um there was a lot of discord. They really did not like each other. And um, I picked up a lot of that tension and I grew up primarily with my mom and not my dad. And my dad it, had a lot of trauma when he was young. Mm -hmm. He's self-made, entrepreneur, kind of, you know, hard nose. He's like a combination of Marlboro Man and a CIA agent. <laughs> so he's very performance oriented and yeah. he would give me, you know, the, the highest accolades when I got the A's and I was just crushing people on the soccer field, you know, like whatever is like, you know, at a boy kind of South Texas mentality. Yeah. And I love my dad and I've always wanted mm -hmm. to, as a child, receive that, yeah. that validation. We all need that, mm -hmm. uh, especially as little people. And so there wasn't like the playing out of family archetypal stuff stereotypic roles mm -hmm. it was more like playing out the family's trauma patterns and the tension that was not resolved between the two of them they did not have a conscious uncoupling they had a very tumultuous uncoupling and they were not mindful and emotionally intelligent about the blast zone of their discord and how that was going to affect anybody in their wake much less a little person um, that was just looking up between the two of them trying to figure out why the god and the goddess mm -hmm. of the universe would be warring and how am I at fault? Yeah. Because at that time, that, that ego stage of development 
it's very egocentric as a little person. You just think like everything that the universe is doing, you're a part of and a cause of, which is somewhat true, but it's still from a naive perspective. It's, and so I, you know, it's easy to see the internalization of that guilt and the desire for reparation and, and mm -hmm. reconciliation. And so I find myself in the healing arts and I find myself helping yeah. people resolve their childhood wounding and, and I'm a stand for conscious uncoupling and, and the fact that we start things so well in our culture. We're such a creative, privileged, excited culture in its adolescence and we don't end things well. And we, and we don't slow down as a culture to appreciate that the crisis is the opportunity to pause right before the transformation and learn what we're you know, harvesting from the stages of development that we may have passed through, but we didn't really consolidate and integrate well. Mm -hmm. We have this adolescent culture that's still trying to find its way into an adult level of responsibility. Yeah, we were just talking about that a little bit earlier too. Like we, we can avoid pain. We can kind of avoid what's hard and staying on you know that path of challenging ourselves and staying on the mm -hmm. fertile edge of things and pushing ourselves and building that resilience um but mm -hmm. it it sounds like as a little boy you were in this position and then you went through this process of college the slowing down and then the final i'm sure ayahuasca being in the jungle was a complete slowing down it was it was such a gorgeous slowing down. Yeah, what was that like? Uh, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced. I knew when I was introduced to ayahuasca that it was, it had just changed my life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure how, and I didn't have an expectation. I just knew it was a technology that I had never been um, introduced to in in studying the mind and in studying allopathic medicine for 12 years up to that point deeply. Mm -hmm. And in fact, everything in allopathic medicine says psychedelic, back then said psychedelic states were wrong, bad, psychedelic medicines were wrong and bad. And if you did too many of them, your brain was gonna end up like a fried egg, right? You remember right? all the fried egg commercials? Oh yeah, I totally. listened. I did too, I was such good propaganda. <laughs> sure, me too, Very it effective worked. propaganda play. Good job, Ronald and Nancy Say Reagan. Say no to drugs, I mean, it worked. <laughs> it worked like a charm. Uh -huh. And there's a major backstory, like if you mm -hmm. watch Neurons to Nirvana, it's a great documentary on the backstory of how these medicines became illegal. And so when I was introduced, it just opened, I was both inspired, like, wow, what just happened? I was also pissed. Mm. Why have I never heard about these before? And so I closed my clinic and moved down to the jungle. And I wanted to study the technology because the medicine space is a technology, mm. not just the medicine molecule or the brew or the tea or the mushroom or whatever you're imbibing mm -hmm. the cactus the shrub the soma the, the the name of a thousand names in a variety of different cultural and geographic contexts to the psychedelics that we've worked with right we have evolved mm -hmm. through psychedelic states not from and towards but through them and as we understand and appreciate that that ecstasis and transcendence is a primary biologic and human need, not just a neurologic and psychologic, but it's a biologic need. It's evolutionarily advantageous that we go through a transcendent state because we receive so much information 
that then propagates the new evolutionary stimulus. Wow. So when these just ideas and openings and explorations became really uh, paramount for me to explore further, I went down to the jungle and I slowed way down. I didn't wear shoes for a year. I lived in a hut for a year and largely it was just me and my teacher and, and the person that was assisting him who was also the cook and the, the land steward and he kind of, UCL did kind of everything. My teacher was Percy. And, and who did um, you tell you were going? I didn't tell anybody. I mean, I told my parents. Where were you for a year? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just I, disappeared. I, I just totally disappeared. I told my parents and a few of my friends that I was going down to the jungle to study herbal medicine, mm -hmm. which was true it enough. It's true. But they wouldn't have had a freaking clue. Some of my friends knew I was studying ayahuasca, but my mm -hmm. parents would have just freaked out. Mm -hmm. My dad already was worried because he's mm -hmm. like, aren't you, wait, didn't you just have a clinic and now you're going to go live in a hut? Right. Hmm. Um, I said, so it's, you know, I had, an, and I had to put it in the context that were like agreeable. So I was like, dad, this is a sabbatical mm -hmm. for herbal medicine studies and like transcultural disciplinary um, research. You know, I had to make it like formal. So he's like, oh, okay. He's not gonna just jump off the deep end and maybe not come back, which is exactly what happened. Right. <laughs> but I didn't want him to just sweat it because then that would be a distraction. It'd be another tether, right. which is like part of the set and the setting. Mm -hmm. You have to set the container mm -hmm. so that you can just totally dissolve mm -hmm. into the process. If you can trust the, the, the setting, mm -hmm. like the environment, if you can trust the facilitation, mm -hmm. and if you can trust the medicine, then it's just about surrendering. Yes making a good prayer, having a good intention, tracking, knowing about self-regulation and faith, right? We were talking earlier about self-regulation yes. and faith or trust, trust in the process. Mm -hmm. Your self-regulation stabilizes the neurology. Trust in the process stabilizes the psychology. Mm -hmm. And when you can do both of those simultaneously, you have a much greater opportunity to experience a positive outcome. Because if you can't be stabilized internally psychologically or neurologically and you get stuck in fight or flight those are bad trips mm -hmm. if you can't find your way out because the facilitation is either absent or not trained up enough then it can be re-traumatizing and that's the last thing we need to do yeah. um, our opportunity is not to put people to sleep like right now i'm running a ketamine clinic and 12 years ago when i was living down in a hut for a year if you had told me, and I was so in love with ayahuasca and I was so in love with the jungle mm -hmm. and my everything had slowed down to the pace of nature. I just lived at the pace of nature. I didn't have mm -hmm. any screens. I very seldom went to town and it was just me and the plants and my broken Spanish and my teachers non-existent English. Every time and when I was in ceremony in, in a dieta and like there was more information coming through and I just wanted some clarity, I would ask him a question and he would say, go talk to the plants. Because my question probably was so in, in unintelligible that he couldn't even understand what I was trying to get to anyway. But it was also true, like just go ask the plants. And so there was this listening yep. that was cultivated over time. And thankfully, it, you know, it's, we're always working, works in progress. So it, it's, there's still more to mm -hmm. go, but there's a much greater capacity to listen and pay attention and read some more of the subtle cues, particularly with people and mm -hmm. just in general with life the space that gets to develop when we've stabilized our neurology mm -hmm. and our psychology allows us that deep surrender to fully explore all aspects of ourself, yeah. including the light and the dark, mm -hmm. including the exalted states and our shadow states. Yeah. And then we can bring all of it into the center of the circle with faith, 
that is happening for us, not against us or to us, even if it's really freaking uncomfortable, this is happening for me as a part of my growth, as a part of my evolution, as a part of ultimately love, which is the blanket of the universe, the core creation pulse into the universe. Love is our blueprint, number one. Choice is our power. Life is our school. Right? These are the three major laws for living, our maxims. When we understand that and we can come back to these foundational pillars, then it's all welcome. Like David Pramal and Mitten have this song, All is Welcome Here. It's just so beautiful. Like, mm. wow, all is welcome. There's a there's a, a Sanskrit word that I love, two words actually, and it's servan anam, and it means everything is food. Nice. And it's kind of that Say same thing, servan anam. Servan anam. And it means everything is food. And it's kind of like that. It's nice. all welcome. But that's, again, something you learn through medicine. Right. Because... What you just you said, can welcoming the that. light and the dark. You can only know that when, when you've been able to receive the, the, the shadow yes. as food. Yes. And understand that. Because like you may have, I may know what you mean. Right. Someone but until said to I you, welcome everything. It. You're like, okay, I'll, I sure. will. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, that's very amazing. What you were talking about before, how do you help somebody do all those things? Get the physiology centered? How do you prepare somebody in that kind of way so that if they do go into ceremony, they can bring those tools in? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so you're talking about the preparation. Yeah. Right, there's these stages mm -hmm. of process of a ceremony, so to speak, or transformational experience. Preparation, the, the transformational process experience itself, the ceremony, the drink and the tea, the take and the whatever or it doesn't have to be medicine in that context mm -hmm. it could be a vision quest it could be a vipassana silent meditation workshop it could be an ecstatic tantra experience it could be a lucid dream mm -hmm. whatever the clarifying moment is yeah. whatever that like noetic truth like this is truth i know this is coming from a place outside of my ego that's when we know it's substantive truth it's because the ego feel that in the body too right, right? Yeah, great. It's, it's yeah. that's a that's such a feminine style. Okay, right? right, and that's the beautiful opportunity that we in masculine, you know, testosterone soaked brains, <clears throat> like one of our mutual colleagues right. would, will speak about in those terms. I love her when she uses those terms. <laughs> the testosterone kind of soaked brain, we orient to truth mm -hmm. and understanding it through the mind. The feminine estrogen soaked brain, right, and estrogen soaked body, right somatizes the experience mm. and understands it through the body interesting right these are the these are the feminine the 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 earth-based mm -hmm. celestial or more like um ground forces so to speak and then you have the 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 masculine celestial forces right whether it's the sun impregnating the earth mm -hmm. life starts or or if it's like god goddess Masculine feminine complements coming together, sperm and egg coming together, life emerges. Mm -hmm. So we are all the complement of these two forces. And when we have a more integrated experience of both understanding and feeling, mm -hmm. thinking and, and embodied experience, now we can have a more um, full process of wisdom that allows us certainly to have a more uh, existential understanding of one another's maps in the masculine feminine complement mm -hmm. 
And this is how we create this polarity that creates the, the juiciness that mm -hmm. drives creation in the first place. Right. So if I'm understanding it and it makes sense, that's why Viktor Frankl, that's Viktor Frankl is my all-time hero. Yeah, I love him. My time in a, a year of a suicidal depression after I moved back from the jungle when I didn't know what just happened, I didn't know who I was, and, and there was no conversation really back then about integration, is when I really thankfully was graced to read Man's Search for Meaning. And from the masculine kind of perspective, mm -hmm. This is true for humans too, just in general, it really helps for us to understand and have mm. meaning for sure. Yeah, deep meaning. Deep Otherwise meaning. we feel so lost. lost. Isn't that part of where maybe even depression 100%. comes from this? Oh, actually ayahuasca at one point, and I'm curious to your thought on this. Um, at one point I was praying for a friend in an ayahuasca ceremony and ayahuasca's answer was kind of like, the gift to the friend was to pray for certain virtues. And it was some of the virtues of obviously Viktor Frankl. It's mm -hmm. all of that wisdom mm -hmm. that some of our disease and lack of health comes from those core beliefs that aren't aligned and the masculine and feminine aren't being aligned. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like ayahuasca was speaking to you about all of this? 100%. Yeah. Like, I want to know, like, what did ayahuasca teach you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I want to know. So much. There were, <laughs> there were vol literally, still in my archives of journals, volumes that just came through on integrative medicine. Back then, I was using the term sustainable wellness. Mm -hmm. And these 3D representations of these uh, forces, these masculine and feminine forces coming together, like this double tetrahedron that is the Merkaba that becomes the the like atomic um, energetic force creating the the impulse for life and when you look at that Merkaba mm -hmm. it's actually a, a two interlocking tetrahedrons spinning in opposite directions and that's just one example and the reason I bring that example up is because it was just so strange. I'd, I'd never seen that before. I'd never, right. no, I'd never seen it in a book and no one had ever told me about it. So I'm drawing all of these different aspects of energetic medicine and how things work at a cellular and psychic level. And the cellular and psychic level is kind of like microscopic and macroscopic. Mm -hmm. And Stan Groff has this great quote. He's like, psychedelics are to the mind what the microscope is to biology. Amazing. And what the telescope is to astronomy. As above, so below. Right. Yeah. So it goes in these kind of directions. Mm. And so all of this was coming through, and I had never studied that. It was only after I came back and I started becoming more interested because all of that started coming through in those Aya ceremonies. It's like you were being prepared for the work you're doing now. Like right, 100%. You were partnering with this intelligence yeah. who was helping you build this. Right. That became the fertile ground for what, what we're in the midst of now. And it was only when I came back and I started studying the sciences of it more deeply that most of, I won't say all, that seems mm. like a, a grandiose statement, but most of what had come through in those journals was validated mm. by science that I was able to see elsewhere. So it was like, oh, wow, well, there's something here. There's something about refining the channel, doing mm -hmm. the work, getting cleaned out, because I is a great purgative that way. So getting cleaned out, opening up and listening. And so in the midst of all that coming through, there were things like, okay, what is that opportunity to stabilize psychologically and neurologically? Mm -hmm. When we have meaning 
how does that complement the embodiment? Because meaning is very mental, embodiment is very somatic or physical. Now you have, again, that greater complement between masculine and feminine mm -hmm. archetypes. So Viktor Frankl has been a, a hero of mine, but it, he's, it's not an embodied practice. It's a, it's a mental understanding. Mm -hmm. We can maybe call it a psychic understanding of the nature of the human experience for sure. And, okay, let's take Besser van der Kolk. Mm -hmm. The body keeps the score. Mm -hmm. So now you have a somatic map right. of understanding meaning. Because the body holding the score is going to be the somaticized expression of the unresolved trauma. Which is always so, it's fascinating to me because again, if you read the book, it's a thought. It's a really interesting idea that our body keeps the score, right? Mm -hmm. But until you have the experience right. with medicine yeah. and actually experience for yourself a sensation in your body or something coming up in the realization that, oh, I didn't remember anything, but it encoded mm -hmm. in my body. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have the memory, but it is encoded within me. Mm -hmm. That's wild it's to true. think it's that our biology <laughs> is and physiology, all of this, it's that profound. Yeah. Yeah, and when we start to stabilize neurologically, mm -hmm. while the body's coming up with its deeper kind of reservoir of trauma mm -hmm. and pain and whatever that encodement was, right. we can come back to the breath. So you were talking earlier about yes. preparation. So how do we prepare yes. people mm -hmm. coming through medicine journeys? And part of it is this mapping kind of system, okay? Mm -hmm. What is the foundation of faith? Do we even have a foundation of faith? Sometimes not. Mm. And that's what's drawing us to medicine work in the first place. I've worked with a lot of really successful people who just crushed it on Wall Street or entertainment industry or whatever the thing was. Whatever the, the external goal that had been identified. Right potentially from them, but usually from somebody else, mm -hmm. i.e. parents and grandparents and like, or, or culture at large, culture. saying that this is success, this is what success looks like and this is how you achieve it externally. If I achieve that and I'm still empty, then now where's my faith? Right. My faith in this thing to save me, it's gonna crack the code of happiness, I just achieved that, woo. Right. Now I'm empty, woo. <laughs> now what? Everything just comes to a screeching halt yeah. and you start hearing and seeing millionaires or ex-artists or exiting, exiting the game. Mm -hmm. My sister exited the game mm -hmm. at her own volition. Where were you in your life when that happened? I had- and Had you done medicine? I had uh, been back from the jungle yeah. for about two years. I'd already gone through my dark night. Wow. Um, and that's not to say that you, you I don't want people to have the the impression that a dark night is the same for everybody, mm -hmm. nor is it a one and done. No. Right? So if I say like, oh, I went through my dark night, I, I'm past that. Mm. I can check that off the box because it can be kind of a sexy thing. Right? Like, oh. I did that. Yeah. That, that led to your kind of transformation, this dark night of the soul. Okay. I'm going to opt in for that. Uh -huh. If the ego oh, is God. calling in the dark night, mm -hmm. it has no idea what it's asking for <laughs> look out right it's the soul that will call yeah. in the dark night yeah. because if we're not aligned with the blueprint of who mm -hmm. we are and what we've come to do right so there's this there's this really good book called um the great work of your life mm -hmm. by stephen cope mm -hmm. about the bhagavad-gita i love that book 
right? So now we can mm-hmm. have that conversation right. about like dharma. Exactly. And how, you, how Krishna to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita talks about dharma, like our soul blueprint, like that thing mm-hmm. that you've come to do. Yes. That no one else can do, right. no one else like you. Mm-hmm. Seven billion people now, but how many billion people before and how many billion people after? There's only ever going to be one Michaela Carlin. Right. Or one me, or one of these guys, right. or one of those guys, or one of anybody. Yeah. And everybody, just like all blades of grass, slightly unique. All grains of sand, slightly unique. All leaves, slightly unique. So when yeah. we understand that blueprint and we express it, that's and, the key. In the, bang, in the right? Bhagavad Gita, if you know your Dharma and you express it, it will save you. If you do not, it, it will, will destroy, destroy you. you. That right there, really, to me, is everything. I mean, truly. So the idea of what is my Dharma? How do we, how do we as even a parent help foster that or those ideas mm-hmm. that there is Dharma and that mm-hmm. forget everything else in the world? Mm-hmm. Do that. Do that. Right? Because when First you were and talking, foremost, do that. Do that. When you were talking about your parents and going into the jungle and the way you had to frame going into the jungle, I had to do that with my kids about uh-huh. psychedelics. Nice. So it's like reversed, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm studying a boga. Mm-hmm. You're going to take a boga and study. We're going to study these plants, right? Mm-hmm. So a similar, I had to make it comfortable. And then there's this realization that, and it was actually in a boga that I had this experience where I was the next morning in front of the mirror and I heard kind of like you do after this deep voice of like, if you're not authentic about everything in your life, you can't be on this path. Mm-hmm. And that was a real kind of like, it's also part of sovereignty too, right? When we can stand in what our truth is, no matter what it is, mm-hmm. right? And going back to the bag of Gita, what you're talking about is if we don't begin to do that at some point, right? Follow that path, follow the truth, regardless of the discomfort in others, we're never getting on our path of Dharma, right? We're not, we're never finding what our Dharma is. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, as I, I hear us speaking about Dharma, it may be also helpful to just translate that little word that's because true. it seems like yes. a strange word to some people. Right. So let's true. just call it the, our gift. Gift. Like what if, whatever our gift is, like, can we find that? And can right. we foster, if we're talking about it from a parental perspective, mm-hmm. best thing that we can do as parents is to love our kids for who they are, yeah. not just what they do. Right. Like inherently mm-hmm. loving anyone, mm-hmm. for that matter, for who they are, is an invitation for them to express their gift and their blueprint and whatever that unique blueprint is. So do you view kind of like Kuya and the work that you do is in some ways it's like rebirthing a human being in the finding of the truth of who they are, reclaiming parts of themselves that they've lost, healing wounds that they may not have even known they've had or they've known they've had, but they've ignored them. Is that what the magic that's going on here is? 100%. Yeah. Can you talk 100%. about that process a little bit? Like how, mm-hmm. what are you seeing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are you witnessing in this this beautiful place? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, we've only been open four months, mm-hmm. uh, and it's amazing to see the transformations that already have happened. Um, and I think we're just going to get better as we refine our systems and build out our suite of services even further. I mean, we've we've been working on 
and, and building Kuya for four years. So it didn't mm -hmm. just happen overnight. Um, Kuya's been working through me for a decade. So that was also not just something that happened overnight. I heard somebody recent say, um, it took me 10 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> so I think something is like right. that with Kuya. You know, there's a lot mm -hmm. that we're just the waiters. Right. Serving the main Serving. course, like one of my teachers would say. It's like, we're just here to offer and the, you were doing this work prior to Kuya too, yeah. this idea of helping I was serving people. a lot of other centers. Yeah. So when my sister passed mm -hmm. uh, a number of years ago, I was medically directing three centers in Sedona wow. at that time. And um, I was still working with my own kind of medicine process. I was very mm -hmm. much married to the Aya path. Mm -hmm. I was working with no other medicines at the mm -hmm. time. And if you had told me then that I was gonna be running a ketamine clinic, I would have said you were crazy. Right. Why would I work with a dissociative synthetic that's gonna numb symptoms mm -hmm. as opposed to helping people through them? And when my sister passed, I realized, and it was super unexpected. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had lost a little bit of touch. We were still on great terms, but we just lost a little bit of touch. She was sober for 14 months. And then all of a sudden got a bottle of wine and shot herself. Oh my God. Wow. And I, we were all just fucking floored. And the whole family, the really, whole family like it was just, just a bomb went off in the family system. And it called me to action. Mm -hmm. That was my, because I was working in the, the underground scene with medicine work. And I realized I can't stay silent anymore. And I wasn't serving the larger medicine path at mm -hmm. that point. Mm hmm um, I was running a detoxification center. I was running a transformational medicine center, and I was running uh, an addiction recovery center. Those are the three different centers in Sedona. So we were still doing good work, mm -hmm. but I wasn't formally focused on psychedelic therapy. Right. And so when that happened, um, that was my call to action. I started doing more education advocacy work, more documentaries, more travel, started consulting. And I kind of like came out, so to speak, mm -hmm. and I started consulting with international teams and clinics on psychedelic medicine and um, and working with Aya centers and Iboga centers. And, and, and I wanted to now broaden my scope of understanding of the different medicines. So the first medicine mm -hmm. I went to after ayahuasca mm -hmm. was Iboga. Because mm -hmm. my sister had an experience with addiction right. uh, and depression related to PTSD that was unresolved. Wow. And you ended up working it at a, a Boga clinic too, didn't you? I was in consulting Mexico? with them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, and I began many years later. Yeah. I medically directed an Ibogaine center in Mexico Crossroads a number of years, eight years ago. Um, and so not only did I want to study the different medicines, I wanted to get involved with them. I wanted to advocate for them. And so that went from Iboga to Ibogaine mm -hmm. to MDMA mm -hmm. to ketamine. So your sister was a huge catalyst for... That was the catalytic You moment. really had like these major events in your life, the, the neck, the Aya journey of a year mm -hmm. a tent journey mm -hmm. it was dark for a while it was dark uh-huh and then losing your sister again really hard difficult time mm -hmm. um what was your way through yeah good question um you know i can't imagine my life without community mm-hmm and without the medicine path. Mm -hmm. And the community that I you know, came home to know as my soul tribe is in Sedona. 
And that's where I came back. I never lived in Sedona until I came back from the jungle. And I knew some really key, super good besties. I didn't know them very long, but I could feel they were like besties to be. <laughs> so I came and uh, lived on their land in a tent on the back side of the property for a year, just trying to like figure out life. And then slowly I built a cabin over the course of a year that helped get in my body, then started running, uh, mm-hmm. being invited to medically direct these centers. Then my sister passed and then was like, okay, let me now serve the medicine. I was being served medicine, but I wasn't serving the medicine. So then I started serving the medicine. And it's almost, do you feel uh, that What possibly, I mean by that, yeah. not serving people in facilitation role. Got it, okay. I was serving the medicine path. Got it. It's like, okay, yes, let yes, me under, yes. let me study. Yes. Let me be in service to the clinics and mm-hmm. facilitators. I wasn't facilitating at that point mm-hmm. at all. I knew I didn't know enough. Right. And my teachers were trained for a dozen years at minimum before they ever worked on behalf of another. And were most of your teachers jungle or here? Both. Both, yeah. Initially, well, my, my kind of path in consciousness studies, so to speak, started with Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, Zen Buddhism and then Tibetan Buddhism took the monastic rites, had a really strong teacher at a long, for a long period of time. And then it was very mental practice, and then, but not so embodied. Mm-hmm. And then I found my way to Native American studies, um, started becoming more familiar with sweat lodge communities and sun dance and spirit dance and did a four-year cycle of spirit dance in, in an ashram that I was living at for a couple of years. And um, then was introduced to ayahuasca shamanism so it's kind of like, you know, Buddhism opened up my mind. Native American wisdom connected me back to the earth and back to my body. And ayahuasca opened up my heart in the midst of mm-hmm. me re- reconnecting and reclaiming a relationship with my soul. Mm-hmm. So when you ask what we're doing here with Kuya, I would call Kuya an institute for transformational medicine where science meets soul. Mm-hmm. We're bringing the hardware technologies and software technologies together. So the hardware technologies being physiologic, neurologic, stabilization, Mm -hmm. how do we help people reclaim a relationship with their conscious ability to gate and harmonize their internal state, their self-regulatory practices? Um, What are some of those? Because I do feel like I work with clients that it seems like their system is just on overdrive. Overdrive. Uh, kind of that sense of they've been on hyper alert their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Chronically stuck in mm-hmm. uh, hyper startle response, mm-hmm. sympathetic overdrive. Yeah, we live at that pace in our culture. Mm-hmm. Throttle down, flicker rates. The the amount of attention that we're able and willing to give any particular project gets less and less over time. Mm-hmm. If you don't capture somebody's attention in like two seconds, they're going to be on to the next thing. Right. And it just becomes this blitzkrieg of informational overload. And our nervous systems have not caught up developmentally, genetically, and evolutionarily to the speed of our technology. So when I was living in the jungle, it was just like coming home. Mm-hmm. Psychically, emotionally, mentally. I was so charged and married to the path, but also just existentially. It mm-hmm. just felt like an easier pace and time signature. Mm-hmm. Living at the pace of nature just felt like home. And then when I came back and <laughs> felt like I was living in a microwave, an aggressive microwave where it's just so fast paced and mm-hmm. so rude and so 
self-centered and so unsustainable. I just felt like a fish out of water. Mm. And so there's a part of that becoming like in retrospect, like you mentioned, like, oh, that was part of my training. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it at the time because mm -hmm. I didn't have a full understanding of the meta position. So part of what we do here in Kuya is trying to help people get in touch with their inner knowing, right? We might call it that like the psychic self. That's a term from Sri Aurobindo, who is like Ken Wilber's teacher and then systems theory and mm -hmm. like integral philosophy. So if we can get in touch with the psychic self, mm -hmm deeper understanding of like who we are at the core of our being or at least help people with the educational framework to know that this work is in service to understanding what that is mm -hmm. that's the educational framework that you put around the medicine work so it creates meaning pre-programmed and pre-offered pre-programmed sounds a little archaic and a little forced it's more like let's investigate what you, a person's beliefs are even about their underlying experience of consciousness mm -hmm. where consciousness is before and after a body because if consciousness is only here in this body then why care anyway right okay so i love talking to people that have experienced like a year in the jungle or medicine like that and so when we speak of consciousness mm -hmm. right and where it lives and how has medicine shown you mm. what consciousness is, where it lives, mm -hmm. who you are? Like, what are some of the greatest teachings that ayahuasca or any other medicine has taught you? Mm. Mm. That's a great question. You know, I've, maybe I've been in, it doesn't really matter, the, the, the number's irrelevant, really. Um, but just to say, say if we were to call it a thousand ceremonies, that's a thousand different ways that the medicine has taught me about consciousness and love probably and right? love love and truth yeah. we were talking about love and truth before those are right. the masculine and feminine compliments love being more feminine truth being more masculine but ultimately they're they're the same because if we understand the inner workings of our own self mm -hmm. then we as you mentioned before as above so below mm -hmm. and we have some all these pithy phrases right right in, as but they're within, consistent so without. but right they're consistent between all cultures yeah Jeffrey Moses has a great book called Oneness, mm. and it's a distillation of all these different spiritual traditions from all these different walks of life and cultural perspectives about spirituality, and they all really say, say the, the same, same things. Thing. And do you find that, that, like, if we took the philosophy that we all get out of medicine, that ultimately it's the same message to all of us? It's, a, it's, it's just yeah. culturally and mm -hmm. verbally and linguistically sh shared in a unique way. Mm -hmm but ultimately the distillation is the same. And so what you were alluding to before is highly relevant between mm -hmm. all spiritual traditions. Mm -hmm. And that's the level of interbeing. Mm -hmm. It's a term for Thich Nhat Hanh now. Yeah. I, Charles Eisenstein, Eisenstein is it. Yeah. beautiful. Right. Um, Joanna Macy describes it as dependent co-arising. It's more of a Buddhist term. Mm -hmm. And she brought Buddhism and coupled it with systems theory, theory and then birthed eco-consciousness and mm -hmm. eco-therapy mm -hmm. and, and the understanding of our connection to the web of life right and the interconnection of all life yeah that's why it requires us to get current with a mountain of freaking sadness mm -hmm. and responsibility for the ecological degradation yes. and the species die-off that's mm -hmm. happened mm -hmm. we're responsible for that right 
And if we know that all life is sacred. And part of us. And within us. Mm -hmm. Then that's going to invite us to get current with the magnitude of beauty that that awareness invites and the magnitude of pain mm -hmm. that has happened as a result of the loss mm -hmm. of life. And what's that happening connection in, maybe? And that connection. What's yeah. happening with the Ukraine right now? Mm -hmm. Right. What's happening with If we really countless... thought that we were interbeings, if we really knew, not thought, knew. Experienced we us were... as interbeings. Exactly. Experienced. And that's. Right. What I was just asking, really, in a way, like the medicine, what is the greatest gift it taught you? It was the actually the experience, experience of it. Of and you can't really necessarily share it. Like you said, it becomes an idea. Even the word interbeing, what a beautiful idea. Mm -hmm. But to feel that, and then you can't go back to living like you didn't know, you don't know it anymore. Yeah, there, there's our, there are times when I may forget yeah. it because mm -hmm. I get caught oh, sure. up in the day-to-day -day and the craziness and like my calendar looks like a freaking Tetris game and I don't know how that happened. And there are the times that like even before when we just sat down, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, my day's been so full. Okay, how do I come back to connection? Right. And the listening yeah. and the awareness of, rec oh, do I know what that feeling of interbeing mm -hmm. is? Mm -hmm. Has that become more of, the the stable baseline mm -hmm. or am i in the process of remembering and experiencing that i mean we're all in the process everything evolves and at some point it doesn't happen over time it's kind of like night to day mm -hmm. here there's this process of dawn and then sun comes but dawn doesn't start when the sun just comes up over the horizon right. it's, it's a process and it's a gradual change or we just passed spring equinox it's not like it went from winter to spring because it's March 22nd. Mm. It's a phase shift. Consciousness is a phase shift. Mm -hmm. Our stable foundation of interbeing is a phase shift. And we move from the me, mine, and I perspective, to use another Buddhist term, into the us, the we, and the all. Mm -hmm. And that's that experience of interbeing. So if I have an existential knowing and a listening to and for that, then I can tell as long as I you know, drop in for just a moment and I can tell if I'm out of that existential moment. Mm. And so if I keep listening and catching myself and then I come back, slow down, take a breath. We just sat with like, you know, frankincense Beautiful. and blue tansy. It's like, just like for Beautiful. me, oils, just smudge, sunlight. <laughs> me too. A fresh a little water. Keeping some of those ceremonies in the day-to-day. -day. In the day-to-day. -day. Practices. So at that time. Yes. Life becomes ceremony. Yes, bringing that mystical into the everyday, everyday. The practical, and it becomes everyday. My home becomes my altar. Mm -hmm. My my place of work is a temple. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, those those sound like lofty phrases, but when we live from a place of yes. interbeing, interconnection, mm -hmm. then life becomes the deeper expression of our true essence. Because everything is connected, inextricably connected. And consciousness is connected mm -hmm. to that before and after the monkey suit. Mm -hmm. So consciousness is somewhere in the, in the variability of interconnectedness. 
it just condenses and crystallizes into this amazing physical temple right that is this home for remembering mm -hmm. and then it will you know like ram das says when we pass through this and i shed this body like an old pair of shoes then i'm back to oneness and back home mm -hmm. so we're constantly just being recycled through life as this opportunity to remember mm. that's so beautiful right that whole process so it's, it's beautiful and hard and all of it all of it, <laughs> all of it. yeah amazing like a ceremony will be yes. beautiful and hard. hard and sometimes the hardest ceremonies are the most beautiful and sometimes the hardest ones are the ones that you know yeah they they taught you the most in life exactly it may not have been beautiful in that moment mm -hmm. but because it's such a teacher it becomes beautiful when you have a higher perspective mm -hmm. and and pain is is hurtful i mean mm -hmm. it's just kind of by definition but it doesn't actually have to be suffering because pain without meaning is suffering mm -hmm. pain with meaning is a teaching transformation it's Probably. a transformation we let it be and it's a symptom pain's oftentimes a symptom yeah. of something being out of balance right or an injury that needs more care and consideration so your presence i just want to just comment on your beautiful presence that you do have and you seem very grounded and there there is a very unique presence about you i don't know if other people say that and i wonder is is that would you say that part of that is from medicine, from all the work that you've done with medicine? Because I wonder for myself, I think I said to this to you before, that I have these deep moments of really feeling that deep sovereign mm. self. Mm -hmm. And that is, there's nothing better mm -hmm. than that feeling, right? Mm -hmm. It's that home and it's mm -hmm. there, there it is. And then I can be, something can come up in life and I can feel some more confusion or chaos or be in that space of, you have termed it, I remember from being true to you, that liminal space. Mm -hmm. You're no longer who you were, you're in the liminal space. That liminal space is so uncomfortable. It's the hardest. So uncomfortable. And I look at you and I think, I see no liminal space here. <laughs> <laughs> you just seem very mm. centered. Mm -hmm. And this is a silly question, but it's like on this path, is that... Is this what I can hope for? <laughs> I'm looking at you thinking, wow, mm. that's just an amazing kind of presence. And what I get the sense from you is such a deep knowing of yourself and that you've known your sovereign yes and no for a long time. Mm. Well, thank you for the kind words. Mm -hmm. um, I experienced you to have a very similar degree of presence. Mm. We've had a number of conversations. This is not our first conversation. No. And it's something that has continuously come through our conversations mm -hmm. is the experience that I have of your presence. And when we meet in that space, then it's like, oh, wow, okay, there's, a, there's something of substance. Yeah. And it's not easy to cultivate that. No. It certainly has come for me catalyzed through medicine, not only through medicine. I think it was a, a part of a searching that was that was going on Always well before there. medicine. Yeah. And when I found the, or when the medicine path found me, <laughs> however that happened, uh, thank you for the orchestration right? and all the Ex causes and conditions that allow that to happen in a good way. Right. And there's the reason that many of the, the teachers, whoever those teachers might be of a variety of different traditions, would call the spiritual path a lonely path. Mm -hmm. Because when we start to get in touch with that deeper knowing, 
it shifts not only internally but externally mm -hmm. all of our relationships shifts our relationship with ourself with life with source with the planet but that's a vertical process mm. self source planet vertical and then all of our external relationships horizontally my partnership my family my work environment my community the nation states humanity all of it concentric circles across this horizontal timeline and kind of landscape so it shifts everything when we come into presence and get to know our deeper true nature that's a highly mm. dangerous concept for the ego mm -hmm. because usually that means disidentifying from everything that was comfortable comfortable known known expected familiar. safe familiar safe. programmed mm -hmm. and usually those programs started way before we had like resource to say oh that's not mine right. we just absorb them as little people from our environment 85 percent of the human psyche from a child developmental perspective is set by the time we're five to seven years old we can re reprogram that but if you were to just stay on a consistent timeline and not like do that deeper inquiry mm -hmm. then most of what is kind of codified as my worldview and self-view is solidified by the time i'm five to seven years old even before i'm like in school it's crazy, isn't it? It's pretty crazy. And so there's that soul aspect of what we come in with. We might call that karma or like mm -hmm. the history. Then what we come in in the present moment as our individual expression in this lifetime, our character. Like when you have seen the kids that have been graced for um, your vessel to steward through into right. life, right? Your kids are all very different. Mm, very. You could have triplets. In, at, born essentially at the same time, right? Essentially in the same environment, be totally different. Yeah, that's the character. That's mm -hmm. the unique soul blueprint or expression. So we have the history, karma. We have the character, and we have our dharma. What we're here to do, and we do this work so that we can transmute our karma in service to our dharma. We we move from that state of whatever's not been brought current, mm -hmm. whatever's been withheld or or repressed. Can we bring that into the center of the circle mm. and allow that to be food and fodder and fertilizer for our growth ahead? Then we bring our shadow, so to speak, into the light. That process will re-trajectorize everything, including our relationships. So it requires the willingness to be in the liminal space alone. Right. Right. But we're never really alone because mm -hmm. we have so much support, even in non-bodied support, mm -hmm. ancestors, all the variety of energetic forces that are here to actually support our life of beneficence in a good way. But it can feel lonely because maybe the human aspect of us is in transition between mm -hmm. our core, like energetic, coherent group, that social network. When, I, when this process started happening for me, a lot of my friends were like, I don't see you at the games anymore. You're not at the bar anymore. You're not mm -hmm. doing X, Y, and Z that we used to do. And I don't like alcohol anymore, it's true. I didn't like sports for a while. Yeah. I went raw vegan, Tibetan Buddhism, hardcore. And I didn't talk to my dad because, yep. I didn't talk to my dad for two years because he was a football uh, loving, uh, red meat, uh, you know, gun carrying uh, redneck. Right. And all these projections. Yeah. Me standing at the pulpit, judging him. Mm -hmm. I mean, it still just hurts to feel that degree of 
internal righteousness mm. that in mm-hmm. that moment mm-hmm. I knew what was right mm-hmm. and he didn't. Right. And so I'm projecting my rightness onto him because of his per- my perception of his wrongness. So that was a deep soul clearing that mm-hmm. had to happen. And mm-hmm. it happened in a ceremony when I, be- I f- existentially felt his experience as a little boy. Amazing. And I was blown away yeah. at the compassion mm-hmm. for knowing his process mm-hmm. and having the experience of him like taking a I, just, I don't like this analogy for lack of a better term taking a bullet for me yeah he went through a process that i'd never i will never have to know Mm-mm. victor Frankl went through a process i will never have to know right. heroes of mine have gone through processes that i'll never have to know and thankfully i can learn from them and their lessons so i can give homage and pay pay gratitude for those lessons that I don't have to learn. That's a degree of humility. Mm-hmm. And so for me, presence was a unique blueprint as I gave up my power because I didn't trust that I was using it in a good way. That led me into a year of a suicidal depression in that tent. Wow. That was me at a soul level mm-hmm. being just crushed egoically. I didn't know who I was anymore. Relinquishing my power until I until the work developmentally and psychologically happened that I could reclaim it because now I could trust it. And that was codifying my life mm-hmm. in integrity, humility, reverence, and gratitude. Mm. Integrity, humility, reverence, and gratitude. Integrity, humility, reverence, and gratitude. That became my two hands and my two feet. Mm-hmm. And when I knew that those were, I didn't have a timeline. And this is like where we give it up because we don't know how long like that process is going to take. That's the hard part. That's the hard part is being willing to stay in the liminal and space. And the trust. And maybe that's the part of like the trust is, that's the process, maybe. That's, the, is, that's a part of it. And the surrender. Right, the surrender. Because trust is kind of like a mental process. Mm. Like if we have trust and it's easier to surrender. Like mm. I trust you to mm. bring in these beautiful people and mm-hmm. blow up my office into this like new studio because <laughs> our studio is not done right, yet. Right. I trust you. And so I can surrender mm-hmm. into that. And I also don't have attachment. Like right. you guys break shit and we'll fix it. You know, it doesn't really matter. I'm not attached. But that process of non-attachment does require some some degree of trust. Mm-hmm. Right? And so when we can trust, when we have the safe container, then we can surrender. Right? Trust the medicine, trust the setting, the environment, and trust the facilitation. Mm-hmm. When that's in place, then we can surrender. So they're highly um, like interwoven those two experiences, when we have a framework, and we don't have a framework, except unless you are unless you have people that are like pointing you in the right direction. I had a framework once I found Man's Search for Meaning, and then I found Thomas More's Dark Night of the Soul. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, John of the Cross, he talked about the Dark Night of the Soul as the entry into an exalted state of reverence and reunion with God. Like, it was the suffering that was the doorway in. Now, we don't have to necessarily flagellate and flog ourselves with right. like iron spikes. But there are ways that we're doing that psychologically right. to ourselves and to each other. It's just not as obvious. So the suffering is our doorway. Like one of my teachers told me a long time ago, he's, suffering is suffering redeems us to our innocence. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Right. Suffering gets the us. The thing I've been avoiding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm always trying to avoid. Right. Not anymore since medicine, but. Right. 
you know, that is... Right, so now suffering has meaning. It has meaning. I know that it's a gift. And it's in service to something. Yes. That's a framework. When we have that kind of framework, it's easier to Mm -hmm. surrender and allow it in. Mm -hmm. It might still be super uncomfortable. But if we have a framework of meaning and we can allow it in, then we can participate. Now we can dance with it. Now we can move from victim. Life's happening to me, against me. Now we can start participating. Life is happening for me. And then when we become a student of it, like we move from victim to participant, participant to student, now hap- now it's happening with me. Mm. So life, life's happening to me, then it's happening for me, then it's happening with me. And then the ultimate is like as teacher, and then life is happening as me. Mm. Right? Then it becomes like, okay, how committed am I to life being a ceremony, my home being an altar? How committed am I willing to consistently come back to the beginner's mind, like knowing that I know nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning about what this monkey suit is doing. Our op- our greatest opportunity at Kuya is to provide people a safe space to know their deeper selves. And to do this like hard work actually, to create that safe space. And, and I think like of your sister, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, I get asked all the time by, because one of the my doorways into psychedelic work was I had a daughter that was depressed. And I had never really experienced any depression because it was perfect. Uh (laughs) So, um, and so I really didn't know how to relate. Relate. Mm -hmm. And I thought, gosh, if you, I was really in the optimization mode, you know, if you work, you know, kind of like exercise can be the solution and high intensity. And there actually, it's funny because I've almost come back to the idea that like I was, doing all that work, meditation, deep spiritual work, the high intensity workout stuff. But without the medicine, um, there was something missing. It was actually without me having done the deeper work, something was really missing. Totally. But that was my kind of way in. And I get asked all the time, like, and I'm curious for this for you, like, people say to me, what would you do now? Now, like, if your child was depressed now, what would you do knowing what you know, Mm -hmm. you know? And I get a sense that this is kind of like, what would you have offered your sister? And this seems to me what you're creating. We created the center that I wanted to see when I was in my dark night, that that I wanted my sister to be able to come Mm -hmm. to and experience my family. We And we create Kuya as a family so that you know, people are onboarded because they want to be a part of an organization that stands for something of substance and, and is rooted in supporting people to get in touch with the deepest aspects of their own being and then celebrate their own life as an expression of beauty and glory. And from that place, when our when we're filled so much with abundance, mm-hmm. we just want to serve, mm-hmm. right? So our service is so we can support other people to be of service and then to create that experience that just net because we all want to contribute to something it's actually the deepest one of the deepest needs needs that we have yeah and one of the regrets that most people have on their deathbed if they don't feel like their life was of meaning or they contributed to something i mean when you think about it and you like zoom out was there another person perfect for this with your life path with first of all how brilliant obviously you are i think i heard you just got a master's in divinity like that or something i got my doctor divinity uh-huh, last doctorate year. sorry yep so 
you have the mind, mm. you had the desire, the deep spiritual need within always, it seems, right? Mm. And then you had these life events show up that were the... Catalytic catalytics. Yeah. I interrupted you. Is that what you're going to say? I was going to say like, okay, what is it when the diamond is like being the pressure yeah, that turns the right. diamond, right? Or even like better. even the pearl. Like it's kind of like the dirt in the oyster that turns to a pearl because it's... And so I think of like the wounds that you did go through, your sister and the time in the jungle feeling alone, and yet you have this amazing mind, amazing spirit. It seems like all of that, of like when I zoom out and look at your life, I'm like, God, this was your dharma. Like you found your path. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm infinitely grateful. Uh, I can't imagine my life without community mm -hmm. and the medicine path. Yeah. And, and, and I'm such a love and an advocate for the medicine path. And that's not to say that the medicine path is the only path. Mm -hmm. It's easy to romanticize and kind of put all oh, of our eggs in that yes. basket. Mm -hmm. And the medicines are not here to fix us mm -mm. at the core level. They're here to help show us truth and help us gain enough perspective to be clear on what is our work to do. What is our 50% to do? We don't come to the ceremony in order to be absolved of all of our suffering. We come to our ceremony in order to understand our suffering. So we as a ketamine clinic, it's not my job to put people to sleep. It's my job to help people wake up. Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel, because I'll have friends say like, oh, can I come with you? Or can I come on this path kind of? And there is a part of me that feels like, oh, oh, do I? <laughs> Are they ready for this? Do I really want to bring them into this? Because there's also a lot of pain on the path. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's hard to onboard people because they don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I still don't know what I don't know. You know, that's why we're constantly evolving, constantly in that growth mindset. But there's there's a longing, yeah, that we have to be on the path of deeper meaning, deeper substance. Well, I think we're doing that culturally and collectively. I think we're slowly moving in that direction. Or maybe it's happening a little bit quicker because medicine path is like psychedelics are just the sexiest thing to talk about it seems these days right so i find myself in this really blessed position to, to run a center of excellence in a pretty hip arena where this is the coolest thing to talk about mm -hmm. and there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it and when we can codify some of these practices as a body of wisdom teachings like as a medical institution because all the institutions are going through major transition. Mm -hmm. The political arena, financial arena, agricultural arena, medical arena, relational arena, legal arena. Like, la, la, la. We just like, everything Everything's is being massive, challenged. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's doing that in order to come into a, a better expression, mm -hmm. a more exalted expression. So when we have the opportunity to codify these new practices, like there now is a board uh, of psychiatric medicine for psychedelic therapy, right? Just like there was a board for geriatric psychiatry mm -hmm. and addiction psychiatry and child psychiatry. And now there's a board for psychedelic psychiatry, Amazing. right? So that's now happening in the medical arena. Now we have the opportunity to codify new standards of care with this kind of medicine. We can do that as a community. What are the right practices 
for psychedelics within the community of underground work. Mm -hmm. Because if you get into just the conversation of like, should psychedelics be legal or illegal, at least we're moving into decriminalization because people should not go to jail for psychedelics usage or possession. No, and it's similar to, it's not similar, but it's kind of like, oh, was it Graham Hancock talking about like the war on consciousness? Like we do have a right to explore who we are at deeper levels. 100%. Yeah. It is not only a right, it's a need. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're talking like Joseph Chilton Pierce has this book called The Biology of Transcendence. It's that same kind of orientation towards the need. That TED Talk that you referenced by Graham mm-hmm. Hancock is one of the best TED Talks all time. Right. And TED, unfortunately or fortunately, banned it. Right. And and the, that's the best way to promote a TED exactly. Talk is to ban it. <laughs> and it was, he just did such a good job of describing his part. Oh, he's, he's such a good storyteller his part of transformation that happened with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. So it's a compelling story. It was the right story at the right time, just like Michael Pollan in How to Change Your Mind, mm-hmm. the right book at the right time. Mm-hmm. I think Kuya's the right clinic at the right time. Yeah, I think so. And so we're doing our part to create the educational framework, mm-hmm. the community framework, to support the individual process of the, the soul meeting the science, the software meeting the hardware, so to speak, to enable people to go through a transformative process. We do some of that work in the preparation by helping people Mm self-regulate, breath, meditation, flotation tanks, contrast therapy, hot and cold therapy, um, IV therapeutics, because a lot of people's systems are significantly down-regulated. All of that is preparation work. And oh, by the way, most of that, if not all of that's integration work too. So the integration work of like, if you have a meditation platform as a part of your preparation practice already encoded, then now you have an even better integration program because you have a practice to come home to. Right. Come home to your breath. Come home to your practices, whatever those are. Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga, high intensity interval training, mm-hmm. like whatever it is that, that mm-hmm. organizes our nervous systems to a greater degree of self-regulation so that we can listen to what's needed in the moment because any medicine has its sweet spot as well as any practice has its sweet spot. If you don't do it enough or you you don't use the thing enough, there's no effect. If you use too much, it becomes poison. Mm -hmm. Medicine works the same. Yep. Circling around the altar because we're hoping that the medicine is gonna fix our suffering is not the orientation towards the right mindful and sustainable use. So not everybody's ready to have a medicine experience. Mm -hmm. So when people ask, can I come on the journey with you? And you're like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, are you ready? Right. Are you ready to question everything, potentially? Are you ready to bring whatever shadow material you may not even know about into the center of the circle and look at it and sit in it and with it Mm -hmm. and let it teach you? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are two things to ask when that happens. Mm. What is it here to teach me and how can I serve it? Like, does it need anything from me? Mm. Especially when we're doing parts work. And so when all of that happens, if we onboard people and they're willing, like, okay, I'm going to, usually I've bet people, like, I'm going to give you a few books and then we're going to talk about them. Mm. And if they come back to the conversation with an informed, and like they're at least willing to put in some effort. Okay, now that's kind of like the first hurdle. And then how do you self-regulate? Have you ever been in touch with fear? What was that like for you? Um, how long did it take you to recalibrate? What would you do now? You know, so like, okay, are you willing to put in the work? Are you, do you know how to self-regulate? And then is there a safe landing pad? This is not an exhaustive list, but this mm-hmm. is some of the things to think about. Is there a safe landing pad 
if if a person's calendar looks anything like my calendar recently, <laughs> it's like a Tetris game, right? So having just a weekend carved mm -hmm. out for soul transformational work is a bad idea, right? Because there's a fair bit of preparation time and consideration to take, mm -hmm. and there's going to be a requirement for integration on the backside. So just hitting like the IS ceremony on a Friday and Saturday night and then the boardroom on a Monday morning mm -hmm. is a bad idea. And I've yeah. seen people crash and burn consistently and then blame the medicine. Right. Or the facilitation. Right. Or like this stupid thing wasn't, I knew it was mm -hmm. a bad idea in the first place. More like, oh, what did you learn? And can you sit and be with that? And you don't know what you don't know. It's kind of like, if I've read about sex and then I have sex, those are two very different knowings mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. If I read about Dark Night of the Soul and I have one, those are two very different very knowings different. now. So, right, I like, are you willing to, and not everybody needs to have a Dark Night of the Soul after their first medicine trip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily happen that way either. But it could initiate that. Right, right. Because if I've been ignoring ready? something that I haven't mm -hmm. wanted to look at, and now that starts to, that door starts to open. Am I going to now be able to unsee what I just saw? Mm -hmm. Am I now going to be you able to? You can try. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> and then you can't. Uh -huh. So you tried for a while. <laughs> tried for a while. Mm -hmm. Well, it, was a, it wasn't a real trying. What it was doing was I was curious because it was so different from my conscious mm -hmm. thoughts mm -hmm. and ideas of things. So I thought maybe it was a collective thing. It was collective, not necessarily mine, but going back to that interbeing and we, like even if it was mm -hmm. collective and not mine, it's still mine, 100%. you know, but then I did learn it was mine as well. And so then it's the healing of what is mine. Mm -hmm. And again, it, we, we were talking about that before, like doing that work as hard as it is, is such a privilege. Because if I can do that work and be able to even talk about that work and share that with my kids of what that looks like and clear that lineage, like you said, mm. of whatever that was within my lineage, it changes the trajectory, hopefully, of their lives and their children's lives, even these conversations, you know? Undoubtedly. Yeah. Mm. Well, may that just continue to unfold with beauty and grace and ease doing that's our right. work that's right knowing that there's a positive impact mm -hmm. even when we don't see it mm -hmm. and we can be a part of that positive impact just by our own presence mm -hmm. like uh saint francis has this beautiful quote prayer share the gospel with everybody mm. and when necessary use words <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, thank you for your well, presence. Thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for creating this beautiful space. Thank you for everything you've taught me because, in mm. the process of being true to you, you were the teacher mm. and such an incredible teacher. And then, my one on one work with you, you really changed my life. When I think of teachers, there's mm. the ones I never got to meet, mm -hmm. you know. And the books that I've read of authors I'll never meet, they've passed, like a Viktor Frankl. Mm. Or, but then there's teachers here still in the monkey suit, as you call it. <laughs> and um, mm. I think of you as a teacher. And so I, I really want to thank you for mm. what you have taught me. Mm. It's been a gift. 
You're very welcome. Glad to play my part. If you enjoyed today's show and want to help build a more beautiful, conscious, and loving world, please share this content with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. And I'd really appreciate you taking the time to write a review so that others can find these amazing conversations. And if you'd like to see a video version of the show, you can find me on YouTube. Feel free to reach out and connect with me at thepsychedelicmom.com or message me on Instagram at thepsychedelicmom. And remember, you are the medicine.